Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think it just underlines how extremely complex our relationship with music, and in particular with musical sound, is that we're not interested in the objectivity of it, really. We want to use it as a sort of stepping stone, maybe to the intentions of the composer. That's probably what the composer would like. But actually, in practice, I think music often conjures up all sorts of images and memories that may be quite unrelated to the composer's intentions and may not be obvious at all. So it may, I guess it's a bit like scent in a way, that a certain smell can take you back to the past in an unexpected way. And I think the way we listen to music is very much like that. So as we listen to it, I think we're reminded either consciously or subconsciously of similar bits of music that we buy or dislike, you know, the last time we heard that piece of music, perhaps, or a performance of it. And this, in a sense, is what adds very much to the richness of music. And interesting, this is one of the things that's made it very difficult, I think, for in the early days of electronic music making, for instance, there was a lot of popularity with the idea that you could just generate the sound, let's say, for a piano or a violin electronically with a few valves. But these attempts were highly unsuccessful. And the reason for that is that it isn't really the notes and the tunes that people focus in on in listening to performance, but the subtleties, and in particular, the sound of the instrument, the way that the music begins and ends, for instance, is all very important. Our memory is no guarantees at all, and yet we bow more often than is objectively justified to the compulsion to believe what it says. The words of Sigmund Freud from his iconic 1899 book, The Interpretation of Dreams. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, I'm joined by two extraordinary authors, one a Colombian, the other an Englishman. Writers with tremendous insight, sensuality and perception. Juan Gabriel Vasquez, the winner of the 2014 International Impact Dublin Literary Award, talks his latest novel, Reputations, a stunning investigation into the relationship between memory and doubt. And science writer, novelist and sound artist, Mike Goldsmith, explores the nature and culture of sound and how we all understand it. This is a show about truth, novelistic imagination and the mysterious space between noise and silence. But first, what makes a sound a note and how does it affect our emotions? Hello, my name is Mike Goldsmith. I used to work at the UK's National Physical Laboratory in Teddington, where I was head of acoustics for many years. But for the past few years, I've been a freelance noise consultant, acoustic historian and science writer. I still work sometimes with the National Physical Laboratory, also with the Noise Abatement Society. And I've recently written a couple of books, one about noise and one more generally about sound. Mike, really well done on the book. It's incredibly interesting. I might just so start off on a bit of a left field note. Do you think Uh we live in very noisy times? I think all of us who live in cities do, really, to be honest. To some extent, I think we don't notice how noisy environments are because we do just get used to them. I think that's very well illustrated, for instance, if you're on the underground or another sort of busy means of transport, you kind of crank up your iPod or shout into your mobile. And when you get off into a relatively quiet area, you still find you're kind of shouting or or listening at a high volume. So, yes, I think we're deeply embedded in the whole world of noise, all all of us who live in cities and especially those of us who, who commute on public transport. So how do you define noise or what does noise mean to you? I presume it's something in relation to unwanted sound and where that meets other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, noise is sometimes defined as sound out of place, which I think is quite a useful definition because it reminds us that some sounds like conversation or music 
can be very welcome in some situations because some people are very unwelcome in others. But yes, unwanted sound is a good definition of, of noise. And can we measure noise? Like I can imagine if I'm in an airport, I'm hearing different types of sounds. If I'm in a train station at home, I suppose it depends on the context, does it? Very much so. And this is a real challenge, actually. It's been a challenge for science and also for lawmaking for centuries that people have tried to come up with laws and regulations to restrict noise. But of course, that immediately comes across the question, how is noise defined? And really, because it is such a subjective thing, it's extremely difficult to measure it properly. Although, generally speaking, something that's loud and startling and non-musical is is noisy. The the amount of um, annoyance, which is the thing you really want to um, home in on and pin down and legislate about, is extremely difficult to define. I mean, you mentioned you're at an airport there, for instance. If you make an objective measurement of the sound of a, a plane flying overhead and you make a measurement of a train going past at the same sort of volume, people will be more annoyed by the plane than by the train because generally speaking people quite like the sounds of trains and generally speaking people dislike the sounds of aircraft so immediately you've got a problem there because the amount of sound you measured may be the same and yet one source of sound is more annoying to the listener than the other so in measuring noise one really has to be quite rough and ready and always take account as you say of the context. So presumably if it's difficult to measure it's next to impossible to control. One thing I suppose I should be clear about is we're talking here about relatively low levels of noise. When any sound is at a very high level, it's dangerous anyway. At pop concerts, for example, and in clubs, sometimes noise is just excessively loud. And, and although the people there may call it music, it would be much more reasonable really to call it noise because it damages people's hearing. Tragically, often with young people, their hearing is damaged in such a way that the symptoms don't turn up for years afterwards when the damage is irreversible. But so certainly when it comes to high levels of sound, the measurement systems and the insulation systems are really quite sophisticated now, and I think a lot can be done. I think the other thing to say is that whatever type of sound people like or dislike, it's important that it's under that person's control. So although people might like listening to loud music in their own home, not many people are going to be happy to hear the music of their neighbours or any other man-made sounds from outside. So I think most people would agree that it's nice to have a home which can be shut off from the outside world of sound. And for that, luckily, there's quite sophisticated ways of soundproofing and sound insulation available these days. Now, right in front of me, I have sound, a very short introduction. And before we get into the book, I might compliment you on the cover. It's incredibly relaxing to look at. It must have been very difficult to picture sound, to put it in a cover, because sound means so many different things to so many different people. Well, I can take no credit for that. That's that's down to the wonderful designers at Oxford University Press. But it is, I agree, actually. I was really pleased when I saw that. It, it is a lovely kind of vaguely sound-related, very relaxing image. But you're right, I think imaging sound is, is a challenging thing. But interesting, actually, ever since, right since the Greeks and certainly since the early Victorian period, people have been fascinated by trying to visualise sound. Maybe because it is so difficult to hone in on what, what is nasty about noise or what's nice about music, people have always wanted to get a picture of it, a physical image of sound. And actually, one of the first people to do this was Alex. Alexander Graham Bell, and he actually got hold of a corpse and cut off its ear, stuck the ear on the stand, covered it with oil, stuck a, a straw, a thin straw, down the ear so it was connecting to the eardrum, and the other side of the straw, he, he allowed to trace patterns on a piece of sooty glass, and then he shouted into the dead ear, and the bit of straw that was touching the piece of sooty glass wobbled, and that was pretty much the first real effort to capture visually a sound. Not surprisingly, it didn't, didn't really take off this idea of using dead people's ears, but there was a very similar system using um, a metal diaphragm developed soon after. Now, you're right. Yeah. Looking at the history of noise is, in some sense, a way of looking at the history of ourselves. I loved that because it just opens up the world in so many different ways, doesn't it? 
It really does. Looking back now in history, we would say that the noisiest time, or the time when noise most became a problem, was the Industrial Revolution, because suddenly not only were there a lot of noisy, steam-driven machines, but also there were many more people exposed to them, partly because people flocked to the cities which were noisy, and partly because early uh, locomotives exported noise to the countryside. But actually, when you look back on those times and what people complained about, noise is very rarely considered, although people were often living in, in slum conditions in very overcrowded conditions and almost, almost invariably noisy conditions in urban environments. Noise just seems to be a thing which was felt to be a sign of progress. So whereas now the idea of living next to a factory which is belting out noise day and night or living next to a busy road, you know, hardly anyone has gone on to do that. In Victorian times, it was at least for some people, for some of it, it was kind of quite celebrated. And it's interesting, she said, there is this very much a changing attitude to noise through time. And I think it's also very true of classical music, for instance. So that in when Stravinsky's Rite of Spring was first performed in, in Paris in the late 19th century, famously, there was literally a riot in the theatre because Stravinsky's music was felt to be so avant-garde and, and so noisy and people referred to as noise, whereas now, listening to the Riot of Spring, I think very few people would call it noise, and even if they did, they wouldn't be moved to kind of tear their furniture apart like they were in those days. And I think the history of music, certainly, or Western music at least, you can look at it very much as a gradual introduction of dissonance, of discord, and of noise into the melodies and harmonies of music to add interest and drama. So it just goes to show that, you know, through historical time, our relationship to the noise as present in music, as well as noise as present in our environment, really has changed. So what makes a note then, Mike? A note is just um, a piece of harmonious sound. So it means it's got a particular pitch, which means that, you, in fact, if you were to use that dead ear machine, the phone autograph that I mentioned just now that, that Alexander Graham Bell developed, and you played a note into it, you would see a nice, smooth, up and down, what's called a sound wave, a very smooth wave, like the wave on the surface of a, a relatively calm sea, for example. And that purity of the signal is reflected in the purity with which we hear that sound. So uh, in nature, for instance, the songs of birds are, are quite pure. They're not very much a mixture of different sounds. They tend to be relatively simple, and that's why we would call them notes. So broadly speaking, a note is something you can describe the pitch of, whereas a noise, what we'd most people would call noise, like uh, the wind, for instance, or something like that, that doesn't have a particular pitch. It isn't a note because you can't say this is its pitch, this is its frequency. Now, Mike, you bring up the French philosopher and musicologist Peter Sandy, and he argues mm-hmm. the essential part of listening to a piece of music is comparison with other works, performers, instruments and other listeners too. I found that fascinating. Where do you stand in all of that? I think that's absolutely true, and I think it just underlines how extremely complex our relationship with music, and in particular with musical sound, is. That we're not interested in the objectivity of it, really. We want to use it as a sort of stepping stone, maybe to the intentions of the composer. That's probably what the composer would like. But actually, in practice, I think music often conjures up all sorts of images and memories that may be quite unrelated to the composer's intentions and may not be obvious at all. So it may, I guess it's a bit like sense in a way that a certain smell can take you back to the past in an unexpected way. And I think the way we listen to music is very much like that. So as we listen to it, I think we're reminded either consciously or subconsciously of similar bits of music that we'd like or dislike, you know, the last time we heard that piece of music, perhaps, or a performance of it. And this, in a sense, is what adds very much to the richness of music. And interestingly, this is one of the things that's made it very difficult, I think, for in the early days of electronic music making, for instance, there was a lot of popularity with the idea that you could just generate the sound that, say, for a piano or a violin electronically with a few valves. But these attempts were highly unsuccessful. And the reason for that is that it isn't really the notes and the tunes that people focus in on in listening to performance, but the subtleties, and in particular, the sound of the instrument, the way that the music begins and ends, for instance, is all very important. So it's a much more complex thing, actually, listening to and enjoying music than possibly physicists at first thought. And having said that, it's still a mystery, really, as to why we like music at all. 
it doesn't really seem to have any evolutionary advantage. Yet it seems to be a practically universal love, the love of music. But when you think about the major events in your life, there's always a soundtrack to Absolutely. those. And when we think of mood, when we think of lots of different things, music comes into it in so many different ways, doesn't it? It really does, yes. And I think that's one of the things that works so well in film, actually, that unless the soundtrack is quite bombastic, you're kind of not, not really aware if there's a soundtrack at all. But if the soundtrack was switched off, immediately I think that would flatten the impact of the film and it would probably seem quite unnatural because we're so used to music in film. And the idea of music being in the background, I think, is, is very much a kind of a natural way the, the hearing system works, in fact. And one of your early questions was about how noisy the world is today. And I think that one of the points about that is you do just get used to noises that are there in the background and, and to some extent they're quite, they can be quite comforting. And famously, if, you, if you've got, a, say, a ticking clock or, or a dripping tap uh, or the rain falling outside, those sort of sounds, you're not conscious of them until they stop. And if those sounds stop suddenly, the silence is, you know, it almost is like a deafening silence. It's really quite shocking that you've suddenly lost that, that noise which subconsciously you were, you were homing in on. Mike, do you think it's possible to fall in love with a voice that isn't necessarily a very attractive voice to you? Do you think that's possible? Because I know I'm pretty touchy on voices. I fall in love over the phone, literally. And it's got me in all sorts of hot water. But um, <laughs> but I'm just wondering, voice is so critical to sexual attraction and how yeah. all those little dynamics, isn't it? Yes. Well, I think many of our reactions to sounds have got their, have their roots either in prehistoric times or before the humans evolved at all from the animals that we evolved from. And I think a lot of what you do with sound, what people used to do in sound um, when they were like, you know, living in caves without any light senses, is try to work out what the source of the sound is and try to work out as much as possible about the sound source. And if that sound is the voice of a person, immediately you hear it. You don't just try to understand what's being said, but also try and gauge everything you can about the person that's making it. So someone living thousands of years ago, they were surrounded by danger and had to make decisions very quickly if they came across people from different tribes. And often the voice might be the first thing that they heard, even if they can understand the language, which they often wouldn't have been able to do. So homing on the emotions of the person, even things like the physical build of the person can all be read off from the sound. So I think it's a very natural inbuilt thing to try to use sound to um, build up evidence about the source of it. And that's actually very much how it is that we're so phenomenally good at understanding what other people are saying. One of the things that computers have, have done very badly at compared to people is, is understanding speech. It takes enormous computers to do it at all, and then it's still nothing like as good as we can do it. And the reason that we're so good at understanding when a word is spoken, say someone mumbles a few words at you, actually there might not be enough information in those particular sounds to work out what they're saying at all, but we know what they are saying because we've built up a context. We know the sort of thing that that person might be saying to us especially if they're answering as a question, for example. And so we automatically fill in the gaps. And this idea of using the sound that you hear as a set of clues and filling in the gaps, whether those gaps are gaps that fill in the meaning of a sentence or gaps that tell you more about the person that you can hear but can't see, I think that's a very natural way to use sound. So I could well imagine it's quite possible to fall in love with someone or intensely dislike someone for that matter simply because of the way their voice sounds, even without knowing what they're saying. Well, presumably, given your expertise and you've spent a significant part of your life uh, researching and understanding sound, you can elicit a lot of social and emotional information by the human voice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I don't think that I'm particularly skilled at this because I think this is a very natural human thing. But I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, the way, for example, on radio and television, there used to be, was it in the 20s or 30s, this idea of received pronunciation, so that people had to speak in a particularly posh, clipped way which sounds completely weird to us today, but in those days, I guess it was a signifier of sort of expertise, of class, of education, 
there was no need to explain to the listener what that sound was supposed to signify, what that pronunciation was supposed to signify. People just knew that you were supposed to listen and take seriously people that spoke with the same pronunciation. And I think in that sense that, that people's voices and accents are absolutely laden with meaning. Still now today, I know they do surveys sometimes about call centres and the and the accents of people using call centres. And often you hear, for example, that people with the Yorkshire accent tend to be relatively well trusted, whereas people with, I think, Irish accents tend to be not trusted. And this kind of statistical finding doesn't seem to be related at all to any evidence. It's just a kind of inbuilt thing about people from certain regions having certain preconceptions about people from other regions, very deep-seated and um, possibly not even conscious. But whether you trust or distrust someone often will, will come down to what their accent's like. And interesting, it's not necessarily because it's similar to your accent. It's just that there were some accents that are just regarded in certain ways. And this is a whole complex minefield of, of um, you know, different views and different data here. It's crazy all the stuff at play. If you were to consider all the different variables, I suppose you'd keep your mouth shut, wouldn't you? Yeah, now, um, yeah. you've introduced me to the Canadian composer Murray Schaffer. I didn't know much about him. I think he set up the World Soundscape Project in Vancouver. And he claims that acoustic environments can not only reveal the social conditions of those who inhabit them, but also also predict how society will evolve. thought that was incredible. Yeah. That just what blew my mind. is one of the most influential people, I think, in, in the impact of sound on human beings, certainly in the, of the 20th century. And his, his fundamental idea is that of the soundscape. So in the same way that we're all familiar with the idea, at least when we're outdoors, of being embedded in a landscape and having certain interaction with the landscape and being perhaps part of that landscape, he proposed this idea, which was becoming extremely well accepted, that we're also embedded in a soundscape, which, just like landscape, may affect us in quite unconscious ways. But the, the sounds, the pressure of, of sound in which we're constantly embedded, particularly in cities, has really effects on us. And in all, as well as all the background sounds that give us a general feeling about whether we're safe, whether we're in a sort of buzzy urban place, whether we're in a quiet place, whether it's night or day, there are also very specific sounds that we might tune into, you know, the sound of the voice of family members, for instance, or a particularly annoying sound of a car or a ticking clock, and all these things together build up this soundscape. And Schaefer's argument is that soundscapes actually, there's a kind of interactive uh, relationship between the people that live in a soundscape and contribute to it, who both make sounds and, and receive the sounds from it. And in, in the late 20th century, the 21st century, this idea of modifying soundscapes to make them more pleasant for people has really come to the fore, whether that's an urban park, for instance, where people might want to add fountains to mask the sound of distant cars or add trees with extra foliage to give that nice feeling of ruralness that the rustling of leaves gives, or people that work in offices where it's actually quite unsatisfactory to have too much of a silence in an open plan office because all you can hear is people talking, and so therefore there's this idea of making a nice soundscape by adding music to it, which of course some people hate. All these ideas really spring in some ways from this idea of Schaefer's that the soundscape that we live in has got a deep effect on on us and we affect it deeply ourselves. How do you understand silence and how do you factor in silence as a sound engineer? I think um, very few people want complete silence. I think, I, think it's, I think what possibly people want is sound that they can control much more. I mean, personally, I'd find it much more peaceful to be in the countryside where it's quiet, whether you can hear leaves rustling, maybe you can hear a stream flowing by, maybe you can hear a few birds. I think that's a much pleasanter and more interesting and peaceful acoustic environment than living in a completely silent room. And in fact, some of the work that I've done at National Physical Laboratories involves working in anechoic chambers. These are chambers which are highly insulated and lined with absorbing materials, so there's no sound that can penetrate from outside, and any sound that you yourself make in the room is immediately absorbed. And that silence, although you can get used to it, is initially really quite unnerving because all you can hear is the beating of your heart and the blood rushing in your ears. And some people find this really 
amount, they feel it's quite a physical pressure on them, this silence. So I think actually a dead silence is quite an unhealthy thing. I guess because it's so unnatural in nature, you would never be away from some source of sound. But I, I think that the sort of quietness that I first mentioned about being out in the countryside is really a wonderful kind of restorative. And actually, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was that volcanic explosion which grounded all planes for a few days, famously. In the, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of the volcano. And there were loads of comments from people who lived in what were normally busy areas near to Heathrow, for example, that for the first time in their lives, in some cases, certainly for the first time in you know years and years, they were exposed to quietness and they could suddenly hear the birds sing and they could hear you know things rustling in the breeze. And that sort of break from the constant noise of aircraft was a just a wonderful thing for people. And I think this idea that you can escape to a quieter place is, is quite wonderful, really. Maybe that's some reason that people do go to the country, not just to see things, but also to avoid hearing too many things. I love the silence in moments of conversation and then that sudden pause are in between the notes in certain ways, that those type of yeah. silences, so they're very subtle. There is noise to them in other ways because there's other subliminal stuff at play, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that I think when you've got a very close friendship with someone, it's a very nice thing sometimes when there's a pause in the conversation and that's just fine, it's just comfortable. Whereas if there's someone that you're not that close to or perhaps you're not keen on, a silence can be absolutely awful and you feel this, you know, you really want to break it because it makes you so tense after a while. There is this kind of awful pregnant pause. So the kind of right kind of silence can be quite a wonderful thing and, and again, quite a nice kind of break. And as you said, there's an enormous amount that can be done in, in the silences between sentences and, as you say, in music, suddenly a sudden break in a, in a piece of music can be extremely noticeable, just as noticeable as a sudden sound can be. Where would you stand on fracking? Oh, yeah, this is a really serious problem. I mean, in terms of construction work, that's causing problems for marine life, for instance. I think one of the really big things is, is piling operations, and piling operations occurring, for example, recently in particular with offshore wind farms. So a piling just means that you're, you know, you're hitting with enormous uh, force and suddenness your ground um, penetrators to sort of get your foundations built. And these low-frequency sounds, well, underwater all sounds travel much more readily than they do in, in air. They, they travel much further before they fade away. And in fact, some sounds can very easily travel across the whole, the whole planet without being particularly loud. So it means that sound is easy to make underwater and then it doesn't die away quickly. But the other thing is that because many underwater spaces are dark, because they're deep or dark, because they're from silt or whatever, many marine organisms have learned to use sound more or less as we use sight. So they use sound to find each other, they use sound to find their prey, they use sound to find predators and escape from predators. Therefore, if they have interference to those sound fields, they can be completely lost. So it's almost like a person suddenly having to not being able to see things properly because there's so much light everywhere. Or maybe you can imagine, you know, if you're suddenly surrounded by a glowing mist, it can just make vaguely out the shapes of things. It would be extremely difficult to live your normal life. And that's very much what happens to these undersea creatures who suddenly are bombarded with sounds not of their making. They can neither understand nor escape from. To the credit of um, lots of different organisations, I think this has now been quite well recognised. And it's, and it's well understood that marine life are particularly whales and dolphins. There's been a lot of concern about them. It's very much understood now that underwater sound can be extremely um, damaging and dangerous to marine life. It's crazy to think what we think we can get away with underwater and what we would then do above water to take totally different approaches and to say that one's legit and one isn't. Have you ever done any sound therapy, Mike? Do you think that the impact of sound on the body can actually heal in some ways? Or do you think that's hocus pocus? 
No, I mean, in fact, I think that's very much what, what music does to us, that music does have real sort of physiological effects on us, and certainly specific sounds. I mean, you know, in the womb, we, babies, before they're born, live in this constant sound environment of their mother's heartbeat, and that rhythmic, all-pervasive sound is a completely natural part of their environment. I think that, that just goes to show how important sound must be to all of us. I'm not so sure about this, what you used to have in the centres, this primal scream therapy, where you just kind of release your inner scream and all that. But the idea of using sound as therapy, I think, is extremely strong. And there's also, I think, as we were saying before about the fact that when you hear a sound, you kind of immediately start to relate it to other sounds you've heard and events you've heard and, and all sorts of things. I think that factor as well can be very important in being a kind of a calming effect of sound, of certain sounds that an individual can learn to or can be trained to associate a particular sound with a particular feeling, which is a very natural thing. But sounds that very naturally come sort of loaded with feelings and then very naturally provoke feelings in us. And so those feelings of, of peace and calm, for instance, you would hope would reappear if, if that sound is repeated. And as I said, I think this is very much what happens with the sound in churches, for instance, can be, you know, whatever your religious views are, going into a church with some sort of beautiful singing, kind of echoing and resonating around the space, is kind of a very deep emotional, almost a spiritual experience in itself, quite apart from any associations that that might have with the fact that it is a church. And so I think the idea of relaxation through sound is certainly absolutely does happen. But I'm just wondering, do you think at some stage we will be able to use sound to look at pairing back our memories or understanding our memories in some way? Well, certainly I think, like what we were saying before about memories having kind of soundtracks to them, I guess that is possible, yes. I think that it's certainly, if something in your mind is already associated with a sound, even hidden deep in your memory, replaying that sound would, would make it come alive again. As I say, just like sometimes you'd smell something which reminds you of, a, of you know, I don't know, the, the varnish in your school or something like that years and years ago, and it, immediately that school is there alive again. I think the fact that sound not only reminds you of things, but also brings the feelings associated with that original experience back too, means that it, it could be key to unlocking memories in particular. Now, last question, Mike, and it was something that I found very moving as I was reading Sound of Short History. You reference a guy called LaBelle. I can't think of his uh, first name, but he wrote something on the lines of, my feeling is an entire history and culture can be found within a single sound. I found that absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I think it is. It's amazing, isn't it? And I think that's true, certainly for individuals. A particular, very simple sound can conjure up so much. And it, it can be such an intrinsic thing to a place, for instance. I think a memory of a particular place, say, from your childhood, maybe it could be brought back completely just by the sound of a particular, maybe a train going by or, you know, a particular voice. I mean, I think the human voice is a real classic one for just encapsulating just in its sound, not necessarily what it's saying, a whole world of different things. And I think hearing, say, it's interesting experience to hear a recording say on a video or something of a person that you've not seen before who's maybe dead. And often it's that, that sound, that, that tenor of their voice that, that brings back so much more than just seeing them. And I think that is true of all sorts of things. This idea that we were talking about before about Murray Schaefer and this idea of the soundscape, he was very keen on the idea that certain individual sounds would really define that whole soundscape. You wouldn't be able to predict in advance what those sounds are, for instance, but play back that particular sound to someone who is familiar with that environment. Maybe they've not been there for decades. The environment really comes alive all around them. And it's just incredible how deeply embedded, I think, into our minds and our brains sounds, even quite simple sounds, are. And the, and the fact they do suddenly resurrect all these connotations stored away, lying dead in our memories, and suddenly they all come alive again. And it's amazing that how well this works, but it's an extremely effective thing and really quite moving when it, when it happens to you, when you come across one of those sounds. And suddenly you're there, you're back in that place and that time again as if it's all around you once more, just triggered by an individual, maybe very short sound. And that was sound artist and writer Mike Goldsmith.
Sound, a very short introduction, is published by Oxford University Press and retails for just under €12 in paperback. An absolute must-buy for anyone interested in the psychology of sound and all the stuff in between. Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's lovely to have your company this evening. In a recent interview, Colombian novelist Juan Gabriel Vasquez said, I think of novelists as parasitic. You feed upon bad things that happen to other people and to yourself with an astonishing lack of guilt. Everything is material for fiction. I have no qualms when it comes to this. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the very great pleasure of meeting up with Juan on the publication of his fifth novel, Reputations. Hello, my name is Juan Gabriel Vasquez. I'm a Colombian novelist. I have published five novels. One of them hasn't been translated into English yet, but the other ones have. They're called The Informers, The Secret History of Costaguana, The Sound of Things Falling, which was very nicely received here in Dublin, and uh, Reputations, which I am here to promote. I'm going to start off by reading uh, the beginning of the new book, Reputations, which goes like this. Sitting on a bench in Parque Santander, having his shoes shined before it was time for the tribute to begin, Mayarino was suddenly sure he'd just seen a long-dead political cartoonist. He had his left foot on the wooden crate and his back pressed against the cushion so his old hernia wouldn't start acting up, and he'd been letting the time slip by, reading the local tabloids, the cheap newsprint blackening his fingers, and the huge red headlines telling him of bloody crimes, sexual secrets, aliens abducting children from barrios on the south side. Reading the tabloids was a sort of guilty pleasure, something he only allowed himself when nobody was looking. That's what Mayarino was thinking about, the hours he'd wasted here, given over to this perversion beneath the pale sunshades. When he looked up, away from the words as one does to remember, and finding his gaze met by the tall buildings, the ever-gray sky, the trees that had always been cracking the asphalt, feeling as though he were seeing it all for the first time. And then it happened. It was just a fraction of a second. The figure crossed 7th Avenue in his dark suit and tidy bow tie and broad-brimmed hat, and then turned the corner beside San Francisco Church and disappeared forever. In an effort not to lose sight of him, Mayarino leaned forward and stepped off the crate just as the bootblack was about to apply the shoe polish to the leather and left an oblong mark on his grey sock, a black eye looking up at him from below, accusingly, like the man's half-closed eyes. Mayarino who until now had only seen the bootblack from above, the shoulders of his blue overalls speckled with fresh dandruff, the crown cleared by an encroaching baldness, found himself facing a veiny nose, small protruding ears, and a moustache that was white and grey, like pigeon shit. Sorry, said Mayarino. I thought I'd seen someone. The man went back to his work, the well-aimed strokes of his hand applying shoe polish to the instep. Hey, he added, could I ask you a question? Go ahead, chief. Did you ever hear of Ricardo Rendon? Reputations is a much private book than my other ones. It's a book that doesn't deal with 
a particular moment in Colombian political history. It's a story about a, a political cartoonist in his predicament, but that also wants to probe into a deepest relationship with the issues of the novel, the media, public responsibility, uh, the fragility of our uh, reputations, of our public images, and the question of memory. These are the subjects of the novel, and they're also dealt with in the most, I think, private, emotional, moral ways. Would you describe the book as an investigation on shame and doubt? That's very good. Yes, yes. Um, in a way, I, I love novels that try to do several things at the same time. So my goal while I was writing Reputations was to discuss uh, several issues. One of them was, as I said, the, the fragility of our public persona, public image. And that has a lot to do with 